This podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Have you ever hit a rock and taken a tumble? I can remember one afternoon I was hurtling down the hill on my blue Repco bicycle when my front wheel hit a rock and I somersaulted over the handlebars and landed on the tarmac like a blob of strawberry jam. I was picking the gravel out of my wounds for weeks, I have to say. But I don't mean that so much have as, have you ever found yourself confounded or confronted by a thing that you weren't expecting, perhaps even didn't see coming, that turned everything upside down. It might have been an event or a person or a loss. It could have been a phone call that changed everything or a thread that you just had to pull or an accident that wasn't meant to happen. It could be something that you were had longed hope for and received only to find it didn't quite meet your expectations or something that you didn't even know you desperately wanted until it was painfully beyond your reach. As the waves of discomfort and pain break over us in this moment, we naturally, I think, ask the question, God, where are you in this? Is this thing that I'm experiencing from you? Are you standing at a distance with a clipboard wanting to know whether or not I'm learning the right lesson? Or are you kneeling beside me, picking the gravel out of my bleeding wounds? The prophet Isaiah warns us in chapter 8, verse 14, God is a sanctuary and a stumbling stone. Yahweh is the rock that brings Israel down. Isaiah offers us such an amazing and unusual and startling image in this verse. God is both a hiding place and a hurtling projectile that throws us off course. God is both sanctuary and stumbling stone. I want to suggest this morning that there is an essential part of the spiritual life that requires us to hit a rock and take a tumble. That grace changes everything, not wrapping us up in a safety blanket, but by startling us in surprise. We stumble into something or something stumbles into us and suddenly through the cracks, the light of God reaches deeper into our lives than it ever has before. And in this moment, we are surprised by grace. One of my favourite stories of surprising grace in the whole of Bible, in the Bible comes from the Old Testament. It's the story of Judah. Judah was the son of Leah, the perpetually unloved wife of Jacob. Judah's one of the 12 sons of Jacob who becomes the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason he's such a compelling figure, I think, is because boy, does he take a tumble. Several, in fact. 
The first time we hear Judah's voice in Scripture is in this discussion he's having amongst his brothers about what on earth they're going to do with this terrible dreamer of a younger brother who's their father's favourite called Joseph. In a plot worthy of the Marx brothers, they decide to dig a pit and chuck Joseph in and wait for a wild animal to come along and make a meal of him. But then Reuben gets a little bit squeamish about killing his own brother. So Judah comes up with a way of getting rid of the need to shed any blood. They drag Joseph out of the pit and they engage in a spot of human trafficking, selling Joseph uh, into slavery in Egypt. After which they blithely go home and hoodwink their beloved father uh, about what's happened to, to their son, telling him that, well, he made a delicious meal for a lion that day. But the stage gets set at this moment and we see Judah, who has proved himself so far to be a devious, greedy liar, free from the constraints and concerns of brotherly love. And we're left to wonder, what on earth will happen to Joseph? And will these terrible brothers get their comeuppance? The second time we see Judah is a little bit later on in Scripture. And he's settled down and he's married with a family of his own. But frankly, this isn't a picture of domestic bliss. Ur, Judah's firstborn son, is so wicked that God snuffs his life out like a mosquito at the barbecue. Ur's wife, Tamar, is left childless. And she now becomes the responsibility of Judah, her father-in-law. And in accordance with this thing called Leverite marriage, if a dead husband had a brother, then his widow would be given to him by by the father-in-law so that she could produce an heir. And the heir would be considered a replacement for the son who had died. Now, we don't know much about Levite marriage, frankly. It's only mentioned three times in the Bible, but we know one thing about it, and that is that men didn't like it. And the reason they didn't like it is because it meant that they were producing an heir which would reduce their own inheritance. So Onan, Ur's brother, decides that, well, this is just a bad deal. So he gives the appearance of doing the right thing by marrying Tamar and sleeping with her, but he's careful to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. So just like his wicked brother Ur, God kills Onan too. And Tamar is left. She is left with who knows what scars from a marriage to a terribly wicked man and the shame of not being able to bear a child for another. So again, she looks to her father-in-law, Judah, who's responsible for protecting and providing for her. And like Onan, Judah gives the appearance of, of doing the right thing. He says to her, you know, my last son, Shayla, he's a little bit too young to get married, so you just need to wait a while, Tamar. Judah sends Tamar away to her father's house, in effect saying, look, Tamar, don't call us, we'll call you, okay? He wants Tamar out of his house and out of his life and away from his last remaining son. Because Judas decided that Tamar is toxic, that she is the one with the problem. She's the one who can't produce an heir and she is the common denominator in the death of his two sons. But what Judah doesn't realise is that Tamar is a stumbling stone. She is the rock 
that will throw the whole course of his life off course. After Tamar realises that Judah has absolutely no intention of fulfilling his responsibilities, like the courageous survivor she is, she seeks to claim what Judah has denied her. In one of the Bible's most unusual and memorable strategies of seeking justice, she disguises herself so no one can see her face. And she sits in a public place and Judah comes up to her and propositions her for sex. And they lie together and she becomes pregnant with his child. And when Judah's told that Tamar is pregnant, my goodness, the murderous hatred within Judah wells up inside of him. And he says, of course, of course she's pregnant. I knew it all along. She's a harlot, bad to the bone. Let's burn her. And just as she's about to be burnt, as she's been bought out, Tamar produces the seal and the staff and the cord, which is the credit card, the wallet and the driver's licence that Judah gave her as a down payment on services rendered. Surprise! Can you imagine for a moment the look on Judah's face? And Tamar says to him, Judah, do you recognise these? And she's not asking him if he can see what she's holding in her hand. She's saying to him, Judah, do you recognise yourself? Tamar's holding those things up saying, can you see who you are? Do you see what you've become? The kind of man who would burn an innocent young woman to death, even though she'd done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong nothing more than courageously pursuing what was legitimately her right. And in the face of this damning evidence, Judah's eyes are opened and he admits that he was wrong. But more than that, he says, she, she is more righteous than I am. She is more righteous. He looks at the cord and the seal and the staff and he sees that he is the kind of person who would sleep with a woman whose face he'd never seen, rather than face up to the responsibilities of protecting and providing for a member of his own family. He sees that he's the kind of person who blamed an innocent woman to the point of ordering her to be burned alive, rather than facing up to the wickedness of his own sons and his own wickedness. Because there's this deep irony that the sentence that Judah sought for Tamar, that she be burned, doesn't actually fit the crime and wasn't required by law. Do you know the one who is condemned to death by law? It's the ones who traffic in slaves. What Judah and his brothers did to Joseph according to the law in Deuteronomy, that is a sin that is punishable by death. You see, God is both a sanctuary and a stumbling stone. Yahweh is the rock that brings Israel down. Sometimes the grace of God is like a hurtling projectile that hits us and throws us completely off course. Because sometimes we are so stuck in our own self-justifying narratives, so utterly confident in our own conclusions, so blinded by our own sin, that all we can do is throw shade at the sins of other people. Sometimes it takes a hurtling projectile to wake us up 
And this isn't an act of vengeance. This is an act of grace where God allows us to stumble off the path of destruction we were happily marching down. So we might stumble into the arms of a loving and merciful God. I wish that this was a minor theme in scripture, like I wish that this was the kind of thing that only happened to a few special people. But actually, God sends the entirety of the people of Israel into exile twice so that they might rediscover who they are by coming to the end of themselves. You see, it's only in the midst of our need that God becomes truly relevant for us in any way. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, really, there is no practical or compelling reason to leave our comfort zone and to wrestle with God. There's no reason to subject ourselves to the rigour of having to learn to love our neighbours as ourselves, let alone loving our enemies, unless we truly believe we need to. I mean, why would you? Why should you? Frankly, few of us do, unless and until we have to. When I look back at my own life, the moments of deep change didn't grow out of the success of my own self-improvement projects. I hit a rock and I took a tumble and I found the delusion that I prefer to live my life in that I'm in control and that I can largely influence all of the events of my life and make them turn out exactly how I want them through an exercise of my own will was pierced. And I was brought to my knees by my inability to fix it or to make it right or to make it go away. And in that moment of utter surrender, the surprising grace of God met me. Friends, God is both a sanctuary and a stumbling stone. And I'm so grateful. In the third and the final scene, we see the fruit of this surprising work of God's grace in Judah's life. In a reversal of that first moment where we met Judah, where Judah was a willing participant in the murder of his own brother, Judah now stands before the most powerful man in Egypt, which of course is his brother Joseph in disguise. And he offers himself up in exchange for the life of his brother Benjamin. Can you see the difference? Judah is now willing to lay down his life for the sake of his brother. And as we follow this extraordinary transformation to its conclusion, we see that on Judah's father's deathbed, as, um, as Jacob pronounces a blessing over his sons, it's not the firstborn, Reuben, or the super successful brother, Joseph, who is the son that is chosen to carry the promise of Abraham. It's Judah. And hundreds of years later, we see God's grace continue to unravel in the most extraordinary way. As in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, it is Tamar and Judah who are named as the great, great, great grandparents of Jesus. In the ancient world, if you wanted to know who someone was, you didn't ask them, what do you do for a living? You asked them who their family was. 
So to understand who Jesus is, is to understand who Jesus' family was. And what do we learn? We learn that Judah's grandmother, that Jesus' grandmother Tamar was abused and mistreated by men who were supposed to protect her. But when her eyes were opened to the reality of her situation, she stood up and she fought for justice. And like Tamar, Jesus came to confront the oppressors and bring justice. And we learn that the grandfather of Jesus, Judah, was a self-justifying, oppressive, lying deceiver who had his eyes open to his inner darkness and it changed him deeply, just like the transformation that Jesus longs to bring. He wants to change us deeply, to give us new hearts. A few weeks ago, Alan kicked off this whole series, Grace Changes Everything, by reminding us that Jesus came from God full of grace and truth. For both Tamar and Judah, their lives were opened when they could see the reality of the truth, when they could see themselves and their circumstances as they really were. You see, it was only when they faced the truth that a space opened up inside of them for grace to do its work. There is an essential part of the spiritual life that requires we hit a rock and take a tumble so that the space for grace to do its work in us might arrive. So friends, may the grace of God who is both a sanctuary and a stumbling stone startle you in surprise. Amen. I don't know what the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, but I wonder if there is a truth in your life, if there is a reality that you have been pushing to the periphery that God is inviting you to confront and to name this morning. Or I wonder like Tamar, if there is an act of profound injustice that has happened in your life that God is inviting you to stand up and to take action around. God's grace is so surprising. It meets us in places where we least expect it. And it does the most extraordinary work in our lives and in our families and in our communities and in the world but we must make space for it. I wanna invite you to make some space for it this morning as we pray. God, in this moment, we just welcome your spirit. Your spirit, the wise counsellor. Your spirit, the bringer of truth. Pierce the darkness within us this morning, God. Give us eyes to see the places in our life where you desire to bring more grace. Surprise us with your mercy. Extend to us your forgiveness so that we might know the transformation you long to bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.